Welcome to Big Local Podcast number 10. We've got a brilliant group of people together today to launch Beyond Age, which is the latest in the series of Big Local essays. This one is quite an important one to Local Trust and to Big Local over the last couple of years as we've gone around Big Local areas. We've noticed something quite distinctive, the extent to which there seems to be a bit of a disjuncture between the sorts of priorities that local authorities, that national government are choosing to fund, and the priorities being put on the table by local people when they're they're given the money to make decisions. If you look at big local overall, you'll see that probably the second or third highest priority, highest area of spend for local people when they're given the ability to make decisions about where money goes is money for young people and youth services. And yet, at the same time in those areas, we're seeing central and local government cutting back on those very same services. So we were delighted to collaborate with the Intergenerational Foundation and to invite Anthony Mason to go out to listen to the voices of young people and to tell their stories. I'm going to ask everybody to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Daniel Rose. I work for Poplar Harker, a housing association based in East London. I'm the director of Spotlight, and Spotlight is a creative youth service for young people aged well, anything 11 to 21, and we engage thousands of young people each year. My name is Iona Lawrence. I work for the Cares family. We bring together young professionals and older neighbours together in London, Liverpool and Manchester. And I used to run the Joe Cox Foundation in memory of the MP. I'm Polly Mann. I'm the development worker for Wick Award, the big local operating in Hackney Wick. And I showed Anthony around Hackney Wick when he was developing his essay. I'm Jessica Wemmer-Smith. I'm the head of communications at Local Trust. I'm Anthony Mason, the author of this paper, um, Beyond Age. And I'm Liz Emerson. I'm a co-founder of the Intergenerational Foundation. We're a non-party political charitable organisation. We're really delighted to be here today to talk about the issues. Brilliant. Well, to kick things off, Anthony, do you want to tell us a little bit about your essay and what else you came across as you visited Big Local for the first time? Let me just start by talking about the Intergenerational Foundation. You can say that the Intergenerational Foundation is motivated by the idea that the intergenerational contract is broken. And this is to say that the traditional time-old idea that each generation should pass on to the next generation a world that is as good, or, or if not better, than the one they inherited. There are many aspects of the intergenerational contract which have clearly been disrupted. You can see it currently in climate change, where you have young people voicing an opinion that older generations are passing on to future generations, a world that is existentially under threat. And that's the the most extreme example of where the intergenerational contract could be considered to be broken. But there are a lot of other areas too. The housing crisis, student loans and the amount of debt that young people are getting into now although we have low unemployment rates currently, a lot of that is precarious short-term employment without much prospect of long-term career planning, pension problems, growing national debt, which has to be paid off at some point in the future. Anyway, we were invited to look at big locals, to look at the way that these issues are affecting big locals, what we could notice on the ground about how these issues were manifesting themselves, but also to see whether the big local programme was finding solutions to these problems. So I went to four big locals, Stoke North, which is the northernmost of the six towns of Stoke-on-Trent. I went to what's called the Coastal Community Challenge, which are three small uh, towns on the Lincolnshire coast. And then there was uh, Churchill, east of Redditch and south of Birmingham, which was built in the 70s as a dormitory town for Birmingham industry. 
and also Hackney Wick, which is uh, in East London. There were many intergenerational issues that they shared. They all have a strong emphasis on young people. They're very keen to address the problems that they're seeing on the ground. And those sort of problems are pretty familiar problems. They're things like antisocial behaviour, alienation of young people, the isolation of older people, and then you get the fear between uh, older people and young people, and also the mental health of young people. And the idea, which the Intergenerational Foundation has studied at some length, by the way, that generations are becoming increasingly segmented. Their areas clustering older people, whereas younger people and working age people tend to be clustering in different places, often urban places. So in what ways are the big locals addressing those problems? There's one particular aspect which is very noticeable is that all of them are putting money and effort into youth centres. And this is really to fill a gap in the drop-off of youth provision is a very important part of how they see what they're doing. The exception being Sutton-on-Sea as part of the Coastal Community Challenge. There's been a, a, a youth club since 1967, the founder of which was someone called John Monk, who very sadly died earlier this year and to whom uh, this paper is dedicated because he was a, a very remarkable man. So youth centres play an important role in that, but also there's a whole range of youth provision that these big locals are putting in, which look like filling gaps in what was normally provided by local government. And that includes mentoring services, drug abuse advisors, career advice, all these kind of things. The lesson to me was, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, by the way, the way that big local funding works, the bottom-up way that um, funding goes to the communities means that communities can identify exactly where the problems lie and place money very carefully, very effectively, to where it really can have a benefit to sometimes to individuals, sometimes it's on a, really on an individual basis, dealing with individuals who are suffering from problems with school or alienation, sometimes with groups, and sometimes more generally with a sort of intergenerational approach to the community as a whole. And the result of this is that um, not only is money very well spent, but also young people get the sense that they belong to a community and that they matter. And that has a, a sort of knock-on effect to the community as a whole. This is a model that seems to work very well, and it is a model that perhaps policymakers and local government should look at closely because it, it may be possible to roll this out to the country as a whole. Anthony, thank you very much for that. You talk about local communities targeting services perhaps where local government has moved away. Do you think it's just like-for-like like replacement or is there something tangibly different about those self-commissioned services that communities are designing for themselves? Communities are a bit fed up with top-down directives coming from, even from local government, even from local people in power, um, not really delivering. Uh, this is a, a point that was made particularly about a skateboard park in Stoke North a young person mentioned when they put up a sort of temporary skateboard park, he said something like, this is the only time adults have asked us what we want and actually delivered it. And you do get the feeling that big local way of funding communities gives them a sense of empowerment about how they can spend that money. Certainly looking at Redditch, which I, I visited a, a few months ago, was really interesting to me, it's the way that they transformed antisocial behaviour there, not just through their youth services, but also by alongside that. Uh, is it Stephen, the landscape gardener there, had been quite instrumental in bringing together a joint initiative to clear up all the rough spaces, to get rid of the shrubberies that meant people couldn't walk down paths and to make the entire area accessible to all generations. So perhaps there's something about the way communities 
can commission in a holistic sense from the bottom up? Um, very difficult to measure the results of that, but you're, you're absolutely right. It gives you a sense of people belonging to a community and having power within their community to make a difference. Polly, does all of that reflect your experience in, in Hackney Wick? It does reflect our experience in Hackney Wick. The work that the young people have done, Hackney Wick Youth Voice, which has been supported by Wick Award, the big local in Hackney Wick, has worked very closely with young people. It, the project was led by a, a young man, relatively young man, who's the youth worker. He came from the area himself, so that was very important. He's grown up with the perspective on living in that area and the experience of young people. And it was a project that was led by the young people, directed completely by the young people. I think for, for many of those young people, it was the very first time that they felt that they had been consulted on anything to do with their area. I think for a lot of them they couldn't believe that they were being asked serious questions. It took them a little while to get to the point where they, they really trusted that they were being listened to. There's a quote from Hackney Wick, isn't there, from, from Luke, who I think contributed quite a lot. I mean, he's obviously a very quotable chap. He's, he says, there's a risk there's an intergenerational Cold War brewing, similar to what we saw in the 1960s, but perhaps more explosive. I think Luke's got it right there. What I've heard in the work that I've done in the intergenerational space is, is it's the kind of heart and mind belief that each generation is meant to do better than and will have greater choice and better economic spending power than the one before. But we know that since the end of the second half of the 20th century, that that has been being torn apart by the reality of life on the ground. And it's that disconnect in the hearts and minds, I think, of individuals and communities that is the actual contract. Yeah. You just can't guarantee your kids are going to do better than you anymore. I, mean, I, I blogged a couple of weeks ago about the disappearance of a different sort of contract, the sort of social contract that you might grow up in an area where there are places to meet where there are shops to go to, where jobs are readily available. And yet in a lot of our communities, particularly more peripheral communities, we know that that's simply not true. At the same time as the public state has withdrawn and closed the community centres and, and withdrawn the funding for civic groups, we're also seeing the shops closing, we're seeing the pubs closing. There's probably more than one generation of person who's feeling that a lot of stuff that was promised is no longer there. I don't know what your experience is in, in Poplar. You're right at the, the um, epicentre of change and modernisation at the moment, well, aren't you? Well, for sure. Though? I mean, there's a lot of change going on at Poplar, but, but Spotlight, which I represent, comes from a gap which needed filling. And the gap was that young people were telling us nine years ago there was nowhere for them to go. As a result, there's nowhere safe for them to go. So they didn't feel safe. And that was kind of the feedback to us. And there's a group of young people, around 25 young people, a part of it called the Youth Empowerment Board. So we tasked those young people to say, OK, is it just you? Is it just a general feeling from yourselves? Is it wider? And they spoke to close to 2,000 young people. And they all kind of came up with the similar things. There's nowhere for us to go. We just hang around the streets. That's the only place we have. And as a result of that, they raised £7 million in funding, in external funding. And they developed something called Spotlight, which was a physical building. And it was an all-singing, all-dancing youth centre. There's a boxing gym, you've got a music studio, you've got a performance space, chill-out and game, there's a kind of kitchen. But it came from the point that young people felt there was nowhere to go. And the number one priority was safety. Now, we're five years into the journey. So we're learning as we go. But even to this day, when we consult with young people, we say, what's the one thing you value about Spotlight? And the number one thing every time is safety. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah of course. And this is, I imagine there's no short answer to this question, but if there were a short answer, we all know the stories of shifting community landscape where people are like, OK, so there is no safe or good place for young people to go and spend time. We need to create them. And then money is poured into creating spaces that people then don't use. Yep. What if you were to summarise 
would you say you've learned in terms of creating spaces that young people are drawn to? Because going back to your opening comments about reclaiming space and identity and mm. all of that good stuff, the stuff that makes community, what do you know about the difference between just creating spaces and then having spaces that people own? Use and use yeah. it. You talk to the people who are supposed to be using it. Consultation, consultation, you can't do enough. Young people feel like it's their space. So they make the decisions about what's delivered there, the colour scheme, what's in the kind of menu, pretty much everything they make decisions on. By empowering them, they feel like it's their space and you kind of break down those barriers. So my one point would be, young people, they're the ones who should be guiding this because they know what's going on and they know what they need. I think I heard in there a bit of something that I've experienced a lot in lots of the work that I've ever done, which is around creating institutions and community spaces regulated enough that they protect people but have enough freedom within them for the messiness of human relationships. Some of that can result in people using spaces and uh, creating relationships within those spaces that might be unexpected and uh, you need to sort of protect against the worst elements of that, I think is a big challenge for the... And, and it's not the only solution, but at Spotlight we have a very flat management structure. And so as a result, you do get that kind of instant feedback. It takes a long time to build up trust, which is why the withdrawal of youth provision has been quite devastating for a lot of communities, because they've had years and years, decades of youth centres and building up that kind of relationship. And when that goes, you try and start again, it takes a long time, a long, many years to get that trust back again. Starting again is hard. <laughs> I was wondering, um, Polly, or maybe Anthony or anybody, about the Cold War. You know, who are the different sides? Is it about power or age? And what are the roots of all of this that mean we're at this point now? Um, I, th I think the quote from Luke, that there's an intergenerational Cold War brewing, I think that, that captures it. Generations just do not get each other. There's such a big difference in understanding. And I think young people do feel very, very isolated. And I do think that, you know, the ground that they're on does not feel safe. This is fundamentally about conflict over access to resources. That's the heart of your analysis, isn't it, Liz? Well, it is, because the elephant in the room in a lot of this discussion is actually the welcome but rapid ageing of our population. The welfare state and the pillars of that welfare state are having to protect many more older people who are likely to have two or more chronic illnesses as they age, who are likely going to need more help from the state as they age at the same time as we have a shrinking working age population and a younger generation at the bottom who are expected to educate themselves to become tax-paying members of society who can then fulfil their side of the generational bargain. That model is broken. And a lot of the work that the Intergenerational Foundation has done has sort of gone to look beyond the big national policy debate. And what we found was that rural areas are ageing twice as fast as urban areas. And even within urban areas, the generations are living increasingly apart. So if the generations want to understand each other, they've got to be able to meet and communicate. There is a one in five chance young people and old people are not meeting enough. That would be great to have more group hugs, but that is not going to get us the money to the areas in which it is needed and successive governments removal of the welfare state from young people, and that has to change. Iona's nodding incredibly enthusiastically over there. I completely agree with everything you've just said, Liz. The institutions that once stuck us together, faith groups and community groups and all of the stuff that once pulled us together no longer exists, and we could spend another two hours working out why that is, but like, we're not wanting to go down that rabbit hole specifically. There are 
as you say, fewer opportunities for people to come together. But how do we explain it to people? How do we explain it to young people and to old people that this is the situation we find ourselves in and the resources aren't being distributed in ways that they'd necessarily understood it to be? I'd go one step further and say, how do we create spaces for people to have that conversation? Like, not dictate the outcome, but create spaces for that dialogue to actually happen. And it's the weird thing that's happening in big locals. Communities are undertaking their own mm. intergenerational impact assessments within their own communities and that is what we need to feed back up to central government to say it can be done you just have to have the courage to do it yeah i agree big local areas have a million pounds and what they do with it often is inspiring and amazing but it amounts to probably 10 pounds ahead of the population it's not a lot of money at the same time but when you go out into some big local communities you can see new expressions of that intergenerational divide almost manifesting itself in ways which we haven't seen before probably a good example of this in action was at the end of the research that the young people did in hackney wick the hackney council hosted a very inclusive evening so representatives from mental health education youth services employment services and the young people had the chair and they were doing the talking. The senior officers from the council were doing the listening. They were talking about better ways for dealing with exclusion from schools and ways of creating dialogue between schools and families, whole families, so that academies in the area have got a better understanding of what it's like for those families the inheritance of local young people in, in terms of mental health, how the parents' experience of mental illness can influence the younger generations. I know going up to you and Rig, Big Local, that there was kind of intergenerational inequity around access to mental health support services. For me, it wasn't clear, I'm not an expert in the space, whether it was new mental illness, mental health issues that were manifesting themselves now because young people were facing pressures in ways they hadn't in the past, or whether it was existing needs that were just increasingly not being met. I think mental health is an issue for both young and adults, and I don't think it's been solved by anyone at the moment. I spoke to the police recently about daily kind of workload, and they said the majority is generated from people suffering from mental health issues, and kind of that's like not making their lives any easier. In terms of young people, for sure, we are seeing a lot more young people with mental health issues and they're coming to us on a, on a daily basis with issues. I mean, our solution is multiple. We try and support them through kind of a youth work model. We try and support them through a social prescribing model, so to engage them in different activities which we might not otherwise have done. Quite recently, we've introduced ourselves to the parents to get to know what's going on in the home, which is working quite well and it's quite nice and the young people value it as well. I mean, we took the step around four years ago to commission uh, mental health practitioners to come into our, our youth centres. So at any one of our youth centres, you'll see a therapist and a counsellor. Um, which we can refer to in-house. That's another example of filling the gap, I suppose. Intergenerational-wise, I'm sure you know, the older generation will say there's a big issue in terms of mental health as well, but it's, it's probably coming out in different ways than it is for young people, I'd say. We know that one in four children will present at school with a mental health condition. We know that mental health conditions are become entrenched um, the earlier that you have one. Um, and uh, we as an organisation are starting a new tranche of work actually imminently looking at the cliff edge that young adults face once they have to start navigating the adult mental health service because they do not have the protection that older generations would have as a protected characteristic to ensure that there is treatment there for them and we see that as an intergenerational unfairness. There's more pressure on kind of frontline services including social workers, including youth offender workers. What we're seeing though is not necessarily less time spent with young people, they're getting bigger caseloads. They might have 15 young people they have to go to meet on a weekly basis. Now that's an issue in itself but the bigger issue which is going to lead to in the future is 
who's doing the creative thinking about these kind of concepts? In the local authority, there's hardly anyone because there's no space to do it due to kind of funding restrictions. We, we should be at the, the front edge of providing solutions to all, all things, really. And you would think we were at the forefront of everything, and yet the basic needs, such as mental and physical health, aren't being kept up with. Are there other examples around the table of initiatives that are getting it right? It's the CARES family. You haven't talked about your model yet, have you? Yeah, no, uh, which is actually unique and really quite yeah. special. I did not create it, so I can brag about it all I like. <laughs> so the CARES family was set up eight years ago, originally in North London, now exists in North London, South London, Liverpool and Manchester, with East London CARES coming later this year. The premise is incredibly simple. We bring together young professionals and older people two groups who live side by side in some of the biggest, most rapidly changing cities in the country. And we bring them together to share time, new experiences, laughter, and ultimately to build relationships. What that actually looks like is two very simple programs. We've got a social club program, which are pub quizzes and dance classes and tea dances. We don't do bingo, we don't do knitting. We don't do anything that stereotypes people. And we also then, for people who might have slightly less mobility or for other limiting factors not be able to leave their home, we have a befriending service. We call it Love Your Neighbour and it's a chance for two people, one young, one old, to spend some time together. The principles that underpin all of this work is about mutual and reciprocal relationship. This is acknowledging that our communities are difficult for everyone to live in and that there's benefit for people coming together and sharing time. Feeling a part of something bigger is something that probably connects all of the work that people around this table do because it's finding that way into not just meaningful connection that might overcome loneliness or, or some of the health challenges, both physically and mentally, but it's also that sense of like identity and belonging. So much under threat, I think, in lots of the communities that we work in. Anthony, sort of thinking about the, the areas you've gone to, what, what are the projects that stuck most in your mind? <laughs> there was one called Crafty So-and-So's <laughs> <laughs> in uh, Church Hill. But that's, uh, that's very much an intergenerational operation. It's embroidery and uh, sewing and, and, and that kind of thing. But it, it involves all generations. I can't remember the statistics, but it's something like nine months to 87 years or something like that. That was one that I think pre-existed, the big local. And it's one that big local has given money to, to get it on a firm footing financially. And I think it's self-supporting now. There were quite a few operations like that in the four different big locals. It's the, the effort to find longevity that really can, can make a big difference. Uh, in the case of Crafty So-and-So, the person running that said, you know, it's been a life changer for many people. They come out of loneliness, they come out of isolation and join something that's bigger than them. You know, they feel a part of the community. I was in a couple of big local areas on Friday. One of them, Ridge Hill, had a really important story about the failure of a youth service there. After some youth services had been closed, there was an attempt to fund a 13-week intervention with children facing difficulties on their estate. And unfortunately, nobody told the children it was just there for 13 weeks. So they spent 13 weeks building trust bonds, getting to know these people who turned up on their estate. And then at the end of the 13 weeks, they said, right, see you, kids. And the impact on some of the children who are being supported has been devastating. But I think some of the insight that had been developed was the extent to which if you do this, you have to commit and do it for the very long term. This isn't about sort of sticking patch interventions for a summer programme that comes or goes. It's about investing in the long term in facilities, but also being willing to put money into long-term services that the people grow with and can learn to trust. The old-style youth clubs that have been going for donkey's years, that are very rooted in communities, often don't meet the, the sort of the trendy criteria, the funding criteria of local authorities. And I think it's worth thinking about how you can help the capacity build those organisations to move with the times, to actually to be more targeted about the interventions that they're delivering. You know, these are organisations that have been going for generations. 
they've struggled to move with the times because they're under-resourced, because there's one great person running the whole thing all by themselves. They risk being lost because they're not delivering what local yeah. funders want them to deliver. And they can add so much value. I mean, people can see, you know, they've been through it, so they've seen the potholes. So they can say to other young people, there's a pothole, don't go that route. And it works so well. I think there's definitely a place. I think you're completely right. I do know, looking at my, my handy stats and pulling them out, although big locals are investing in young people, actually very few young people are involved in big locals. Of about 1,700 partnership members, about 28% are 65 or over, 44% are 45 to 64, only 3% are under 24 years old. So even if big locals are acknowledging issues amongst young people in their areas, actually there's a way to go within big local itself to find ways to get young people involved in decision making. That might be a challenge for the, for the next two to three years. Please. I was going to say, don't be too hard on yourself. Because actually, it's our job as parents and grandparents to vote in the interests of our children and our grandchildren and future generations. And rather than expecting young people to rise up and rebel and do all the work themselves... Or turn up to committees, even Or worse. turn up to committees, is actually to vote in their interests ourselves. And that would be the gentle challenge. I'd be really interested to see where, where you guys are going next with the, some of the beginnings of the brilliant storytelling that's in here. Gosh, that's almost a, a great uh, sort of summarising commentary at the end of a discussion about a fantastic essay. It's both interesting, challenging, captures some voices really well, but raises important issues that, that go well beyond big local. Anthony, I don't know if you've got any final words to say. I'm really pleased to be here and I'm, I'm really interested to hear the voices of the people around this table. Um, which has really contributed a great deal. So I hope um, people will read this paper. I hope policymakers and people in authority will read this paper and draws the conclusion that this really is uh, an interesting model that can really change the lot of young generations now and future generations. <laughs>